There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast, normally with Greg and Colin, but today I've got Paige Hilton joining me. Paige, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. I think this is your third episode you've been on, isn't it? It is. It's the third time. And you're always so comfortable and so eager to get back onto it, aren't you? <laughs> third time's a charm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we gave Greg the day off today. He's been working pretty hard lately. So Paige, I'm finding that some of the biggest issues that we're faced with these days are focused around communication. Are you finding that as well? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, like communicating what is happening in a really complex markets in a way for others to follow along. I mean, let's face it, we can get pretty deep in the weeds and terminology that doesn't mean anything to someone outside of our field. Like if I go home and I speak to my wife about EBITDA and Kager, you know, <laughs> she doesn't know what I'm talking about, but she could also talk to me about, she's a social worker, about some form of, I don't know, social worky thing. And I don't know what she's talking <laughs> about. So so today we have a guest on our show to go through some communication styles. I, I think we're going to get into that. So this person has appeared on the early show MSNBC, Fox Business, CNN, CBS, ABC, and others. That's quite a list, by the way. Quite a list. His name is Dan Solon. Dan is the New York Times bestselling author of the smartest series of investing book, the smartest sales book you'll ever read, and a book called Ask, How to Relate to Anyone. He blogs weekly for advisor perspectives. He has quite a large following, including myself. I follow Dan on, on LinkedIn and other formats. He's a former securities attorney, a graduate from John Hopkins University and the University of Pennsylvania Law School. But the true highlight of anyone's career is being on the Free Lunch Podcast. So Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin and Paige. I'm excited that you invited me and looking forward to speaking with you and your listeners. Well, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. As I say, I've been following you on LinkedIn for quite a while now, and we had a little conversation before we got going here. And it's neat to me to be able to meet and speak with people from all over the world that you get to connect with on a platform like LinkedIn that are aligned in your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's great for me too. I get to meet a lot of interesting people like the two of you. And it turns out that we're all kind of the same. We have more in common than what separates us. We're separated by geography, culture, ethnicity, often race, and religion. But I find that there's an enormous amount that we share as people. And I'm spoiled because I'm typically interviewed by people like the two of you. And it's a self-selected group of like very intelligent, sensitive, thoughtful people. So all these experiences, I learn more than, than I impart. Well, I mean, you know, like I said at the beginning, being on the Free Lunch podcast is very similar to being on <laughs> CNN. <laughs> but Paige, why don't you kick us off with some questions for Dan? Sounds good. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. So why don't you tell us your story? How did you end up where you are today? Let me just make it a teaching moment and tell you that actually nobody is interested in my story, <laughs> which is why 
<laughs> why I keep it very brief when I'm asked that question, because when people are listening to a podcast or anything else, what they're really think we think what we're saying is critically important and everybody must be interested in it. What they're thinking is, is there something this person is going to tell me that's going to solve a problem in my life or help me navigate some area that I'm having difficulty navigating? So I, I always keep that in mind because, of course, I'm going to love telling you all about my story and leaving out all the bad stuff and just keeping the good stuff in because that's that like makes my brain, as we'll talk about later, feel really good. But that doesn't mean the listeners are going to feel very good. But so having said that, raised in Massachusetts, went to the, the schools that Colin mentioned, practiced as a lawyer for many years. And at the end of my practice, I knew nothing about really the stock market. And I started getting cases of investors who had been harmed terribly by the most egregious conduct imaginable of their brokers. And I started trying those cases and I learned a lot. And one of the things I learned was that many people in this business are trained to generate commissions, but know very little about investing. And it was sad because I saw the harm that was done by these people. And so I decided to start writing books that I thought would help people, prevention being cheaper than cure, would help people avoid being victimized by people who didn't know what they were doing and who had obvious conflicts of interest. And that's how I got started writing books. That's really interesting to me because one of the mandates that we have as a group, the CM group, is we work really hard to try to educate investors, but also to raise the bar for advice being given to those investors. Because I think you're right, like there's a very low barrier of entry to this profession at times, and it can lead to some bad things. So, you know, our goal is to is to improve that outcome for for all. So I, I echo your sentiment about about that, Dan. So Paige, what else we got? Well, I think that almost leads into our next question. So we believe in evidence-based investing. I noticed on your website that you use the term evidence-based advisor marketing. What is evidence-based advisor marketing? So I made a decision a long time ago when I decided I could afford to be particular that if I was going to spend my time and efforts helping people and serving people for money, I wasn't just going to be for sale and that I was going to limit my practice to people who I respected, who were doing the opposite of what was occurring in my last answer. Basically, conflicted advisors whose primary goal was transferring wealth from their clients to them. And so we became the first digital consulting firm. I think we still are the only one that we limit our practice to evidence-based advisors, meaning advisors who don't engage in stock picking or market timing, don't try to pick the next outperforming actively managed mutual fund, and who basically follow peer-reviewed academic principles in investing. Because those are people where I feel to the extent we can help, every time we help them, that means they're going to generate more business. They generate more business. They're going to impact more people positively. And I feel personally very gratified by that. Sounds a lot like in economics, they talk about the velocity of money and how that speed of, of transfer of money based on 
coming out of a recession into an expansion period. What you're talking about is the velocity of information is that you're you're working with people like us that believe in things like factors of return instead of stock picking and how if we can spread that word more and more, it will impact more and more people to the good. Is it, do I understand that correctly? You do. It's just a classic domino effect, right? If you know us, seen all the domino things where all those cards start falling. Yes, I help you with communicating and my communication aid increases your conversion rate from 20, I don't know what it, I'm not suggesting it is this, but the average is around 20 to 25% to 80%. Okay, well, that's a big impact because you're helping those families. Those families are going to be able to better educate their children. They're going to have less anxiety. They're going to refer other people to you and to firms with a similar high standard. And all this has, I'm not saying I'm changing the world, but I'm just saying, One client at a time can have a very serious impact on a disproportionate number of people. So, Dan, tell us about one of your books. What is the premise of Ask? So the premise of Ask is it's based on a lot of neuroscience and psychology studies. I generally tell people, don't listen to me. I don't think my judgment on anything other than like I'm pretty good on legal stuff because I'm trained for that and I know enough about investing to be dangerous. But in any other area, you really shouldn't listen to me. So it's a lot like, oh, why are you an evidence-based advisor? Because you're persuaded by the evidence that that makes sense. The premise of ask is I looked at hundreds and hundreds of studies and what I learned in one short sentence is, When I'm talking, I'm losing. When I'm listening, I'm winning. And therefore, I should be asking questions and eliciting information rather than conveying information. That's the premise of ASK. It seems that ASK is built around empathy, being empathetic, an active listener. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. And listening meaning not doing what I call competitive listening, which is I'm waiting for you to stop talking so I can say something that I think is really important. Really listening is putting aside my agenda, actually hearing what you have to say, and then asking appropriate follow-up questions that show a genuine and authentic interest in you as a person. I got a follow-up to that, Paige. So in our world, we get asked a lot of questions like, what do you think the stock market's going to do? What do you think this particular company is going to do? Should I be worried about the bond market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like there's all kinds of questions like that. I've sort of summarized all of those questions as having the same root cause. And that is, am I going to be okay? And that can be asked in a variety of ways, right? So for example, Dan, like my mom one time asked me, should she own more bonds. My mom, honest, lovely lady, doesn't really know what a bond is. So I had to think about, well, where where is this question coming from? You know, to me, it was coming from, am I going to be okay? Do you run into that in your own studies? Well, yeah, I have run into that a lot. That's a very profound observation you just made. I hadn't heard it expressed like that before. And I, I totally agree with you. I think the other place it comes from is we want to be in control of things. We want to believe that somebody knows the unknowable. And 
if that's you, we want to say, oh, I'll talk to Colin. He can tell me the direction of the market, and then I all my anxiety will be reduced. But the ramifications of asking that question, it actually presents an interesting opportunity because somebody who understands how to communicate would respond to that question like by saying something like, tell me a little more about why you're concerned about that, and would draw out that person who might say, well, I'm concerned about that because the market's just tanked and they're down this year by 25% and I'm worried about running out of money. And then instead of going into like, oh, here's the historical returns since 1926 of the market so we can show that this is just a blip on the radar, instead of doing something like that, it would be asking this kind of a question, would it make a difference to you if I explain, kind of put this current market situation in some historical perspective? And it, it's quite amazing when you flip the switch in your brain from conveying to eliciting, and you're trained to think, what's an appropriate question to ask if that's a normal thing to do? I mean, sometimes people ask you questions, they deserve a direct answer, not more questions. But most of the time, we're so eager to answer questions, we don't really understand what's being asked. So we often need to get clarification. If somebody says, I'm very worried about risk, okay, well, that could cover a thousand things, right? And you could talk about volatility and standard deviation if you want, but maybe they're concerned because their parents went through or grandparents went through the Great Depression, or maybe they're concerned because they're about to retire. I mean, they're unless you ask for clarification, you often don't know what you're answering. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I've run into that recently with clients talking about volatility and and we've gone through the exercise. Like, do you want to go through standard deviation of your portfolio? I mean, I can show you one, two, three standard deviations away based on historical data. I don't know if that's going to make you feel any better about what's happening today, but, you know, we've got the tools to go through it. But what you're saying is that you don't necessarily have to go there, right? You have to back out of that a little bit. You have to find out where they want to go. Maybe an explanation of standard deviation, for example, when, when you're putting somebody into a portfolio is very useful to adjust their expectations. To say to them, you know, given the standard deviation of this portfolio, it's pretty volatile. I mean, you could expect a worst case analysis of this and a best case of this based on historical data. And maybe that's useful. Maybe it isn't. But we don't know until we ask. And so few of us ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like going back to that point about my mom, Paige, and I know I'm going on and on about <laughs> this, but if I went through standard deviation with my mom, she'd be, it wouldn't, it just wouldn't resonate. And then it would be, well, what was the point? Am I trying to sound smarter than the person I'm talking to? Or am I trying to help them solve a problem? Yeah. You can see when you get really into the terminology, when you actually start losing people's interest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a funny story about terminology. So a career before this one, Dan, I've been doing this for 20 years, but before this, I worked at an oil and gas company in the IT department and we had a printer. It was a Xerox NC60, which is just a color printer. And an engineer sent me a note and said, Hey, the printer's not working. And I said, well, which one? And he said, I don't know, the color one. I said, the NC60? And he replied, NC60 is a terminology I use for a sort of pipeline. So it was like, 
we had the same acronyms for totally different things. So lack of communication. We often don't communicate because we don't take the time to understand where the other person is coming from. With your mom, it would have been really quite easy to say, I'm sensing some anxiety here. Tell me more about that. Those words, by the way, tell me more about that. Think of your own experiences and how few times, I'm just making an assumption, which I shouldn't do, but how few times in your lives people have looked at you and said, oh, Colin, Paige, interesting what you just said. Tell me more about that. When you think about that, very few people can remember a single instance when that's ever happened their entire life. Because most of us, if you say you're going to Paris, the other person is going to say, we went to not only Paris, but London, and then we went to Copenhagen. Yeah. And it's some, <laughs> you're involved in some kind of a competitive thing of like, who's done the most? Yeah, yeah that's the, the one-up game. I hate that game. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's because they're not listening. Yeah, yeah. And to your point of making assumptions based on when you certainly first meet people, what the listeners don't know is that <laughs> Paige and I are dressed up for Halloween today, and Paige is dressed as a pirate. <laughs> so, and you're dressed as Ted Lasso. You've got to put that in there, too. Yes, I'm dressed as Ted Lasso. Okay. All right, let's move on with our questions, Paige. All right. So in our industry, research and due diligence, they're so important. So, Dan, what is the research on which ASK is based? So I have like, I don't know, a 25-page bibliography and ask in which I set forth all of the studies that I relied on. And I would say that the research on which ASK is based is every bit as vigorous as the research that evidence-based investing is based on. It's, these are peer-reviewed studies from major universities published in serious neuroscience and psychology publications based on a lot of experiments, a lot of imaging of the brain. So it's very solidly based. And I think what I found was, wow, this research changes everything I ever thought about communicating. And I mean, that was my big epiphany was, I mean, I'm trained as a lawyer and I was a trial lawyer for many years. But as a trial lawyer, you have a warped sense of communication because you're talking to a jury and they can't talk back. So was kind of accustomed to, oh, I'm the center of the universe. I talk and people have to sit there quietly and listen. But in real life, it doesn't work out that way. And once I saw the studies, it was it changed tremendously how I communicate with everyone, not just in my professional life, but in my personal life as well. Yeah, I think we've all, I mean, we're parents. I've been at home being that trial lawyer in front of my kids and they just leave, right? They don't they don't listen. <laughs> I want them to stay and listen to everything that I'm espousing to them, but it just doesn't work it doesn't out that doesn't work way. that way. Never gonna happen. So when you were doing the research, did you have an aha moment when you uncovered a particular study? I did. There was a Harvard study I'll summarize it. It's a little more involved than what I'm about to say, but if any of your listeners are interested, I'll send a link to the study. They can read the original study. They took 190 participants, hooked them up to a functional MRI. Functional MRIs measure brain activity in real time. So a neuroscientist can look at those images and say, oh, when they were engaged in this activity, this region of their brain showed activity. And we know what 
emotions that region of the brain controls, pleasure, pain, anxiety, whatever. So all they said to them was bring a friend or relative to the experiment. The experiment number one, they put them in cubicles, gave them a smartphone and said, all we want you to do is talk about yourself. Experiment number two, all we want you to do is talk about yourself but what you're saying is so interesting to us that we're going to do a transcript and share it with the friend or relative who came with you. They looked at the functional MRIs from experiment number one. They found that the prefrontal cortex, specifically that portion of the brain that controls feelings of intense pleasure, the most pleasurable activities humans can engage in, that that portion of the brain lit up when people are talking about themselves in a way that was indistinguishable from the way it lights up when people are engaged in those activities. Experiment number two, it lit up even more when people thought, oh, I'm talking about myself and other people are going to actually read what I'm saying. So I drew this conclusion from the study. This is not part of the study. Like, really? All I have to do in an interaction with anybody, if I want them to feel really great, is just get them to talk about themselves. How hard can that be? And that was the big aha moment. Well, it's it's actually harder than you think because our first question to you was, tell us your story, Dan, and you didn't want to. <laughs> so very, very good point. So my process does not involve forcing people who don't want to talk to talk. So there are people, mainly people like me who are introverts. We don't like talking about ourselves. We don't even like talking. I like talking to you and Paige. I like talking to groups. But generally, I'm not going to be the person who's like holding court and telling jokes and going to bars and drinking with my friends. It's not what introverts do. So my process is not forcing people like me to do anything I don't want to do. So I'll give you a perfect example. When I was testing my process after I had done the research, but before I decided to write a book about it, I met with an engineer and I said, do you have engineers as clients, Colin? Or oh, yeah, you bet. Yeah, very analytical people. Yep. Very analytical. They think I'm going to paint with a broad brush here. They think everything can be measured. They think everything is totally rational. And they don't really understand that the markets are basically random and that it can't be measured or predicted with any certainty. So I met with an engineer and I said, so, Bill, tell me about yourself. He looked at me and he said, yeah, Dan, I'm really not into that. <laughs> I've got 10 questions. I'd really be grateful if you just answer them. So in my brain, how I felt at that moment was this is great. My job is not to impose my agenda on them. If he doesn't want to talk about himself, I want to find out what he does want to talk about. And he's just told me. So I said, well, let's start with question number one. And we went through one through 10. And then I did what I train coaching clients to do. At the end of the hour, I said, how would you like to proceed? He said, I'd like to get started. How do I do that? Great. So it's very important. The story about me resisting, I hope not impolitely, Paige, resisting when he said, tell me about your story, that really does illustrate that we can't treat everybody like they're the same. If you say to an extrovert, tell me your story, you can sit back and what they're thinking is, how much time do you have? I mean, they really want to 
they really want to tell their story, right? So we have to be self-aware, which is another major epiphany. We have to know who we are. Are we introverts, extroverts, or like you, Colin, ambiverts? Paige, what are you, by the way? I think I'm mostly an introvert, but an extrovert when I have to. That's an ambivert. Yeah. You're like me. Yeah, I yeah. can do it if I have to, but I, I think I'm more introverted than people would think I am. Okay, so you obviously have thought about that. You know that, by the way, for any introverts in the audience, the classic book was written by a Harvard professor, Susan Cain, C-A-I-N, called Quiet, Change will change the life of any introvert because... We think as introverts that there's something wrong with us because two-thirds of the population are extroverts, but it turns out it's in our DNA. It's just who we are, and that's how we react to certain things. So you have to know who you are, but more importantly, you have to know who the person in front of you is. I can pretty quickly tell whether I'm talking to an introvert or an extrovert. Ambiverts are more challenging because they show evidence of both, but ambiverts tend to be more introverted than extroverted. So all this self-awareness is kind of the second big epiphany. That's really, if you want to be an effective communicator, you have to have kind of what I call intense Mm -hmm, mm self-awareness. You brought up something earlier about where the pleasure part of the brain or where pleasure is treated in the brain or, or how it's dealt with. In our world, we've often talked about how financial loss is actually treated in the same part of the brain that deals with mortal danger and how it's sort of, easier to understand why somebody wants to sell out of their investments at the absolute wrong time because their brain is treating it like a saber-toothed tiger is coming to get them, right? So have you done a lot of work on the the cognitive bias, behavioral bias, behavioral finance area? I have, and you're touching upon a very important subject. So The lion is going to eat me scenario is evolutionary, namely when we're when our great ancestors were walking through the woods and heard a crack, the crack could be nothing or it could be a lion approaching. And psychologists theorize that the reason we have what's called a negative bias is because we were programmed, just from an evolutionary standpoint, we're programmed to prioritize negativity. For every positive experience in our life, and the two of you probably experience this, like you have a great day and a number of clients tell you how wonderful you are, but one client calls and says, I'm leaving. I was very unhappy with our last meeting. Well, you're going to remember the negative much more than the positive. And there are studies showing it takes four positives to make up for one negative. So we all have a strong negativity bias. We tend to catastrophize we tend to take negative experiences out of context. So when the market drops, we're thinking, I could lose all my money. The financial media doesn't help. You'll see articles like, how low can your portfolio go? Kind of raising the specter that all stocks could go to zero, which we know is ridiculous, unless there's like a nuclear holocaust, in which case we all have much bigger problems than the value of our portfolio. So yeah, negativity bias, very important to understand. I guess since we're talking about questions, my question would be, can you ever ask too many questions? So uh, that actually is a really good question in itself, Paige. John Bogle once said, you know, investing, I'm going to butcher his quote, but he, he said like, investing is simple, but it's not easy. 
I mean, good investing, as you know, is pretty simple and it's become, you know, much simpler. Asking questions sounds like, oh, that's very easy. Anybody can do that. But all questions aren't created equal. So what is your net worth is a question, but it's not the kind of question I'm talking about. Tell me about yourself is the kind of question I'm talking about. Or what would you like to talk about today? Or tell me more about that experience. Those are all questions. So you can never ask too many of those questions, but it's very easy to ask too many questions of the wrong kind. And also, if you're not authentic and genuine, people have a strong sixth sense for this. So if you're asking questions and it comes across as manipulative, now you're asking too many questions and doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Here's my my least favorite question I get from friends and family members at various times. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> why do you want to know? <laughs> yeah, that's my response is why. Because normally it's like, oh, I was going to move this piano, need some help. As an introvert, you have to have that out. <laughs> the problem with that question, it gets back into something competitive again. I mean, it's like you're put under pressure to say that there's some fascinating activity you're going to be doing this weekend when for most of us, at least, just living life takes a lot of our time, right? We're going to mow the lawn this weekend. We're going to wash the car this weekend. And it makes you feel like there's something wrong with you because you're, you know, you're not going to be shot into space this weekend or <laughs> climbing, you know, climbing some mountain or doing some like risky bungee jumping activity. Yeah, so true. Okay, so listen, thank you for that, Dan. Thank you for taking us through that. We want to end our time today with just a short speed round. Now, for the listeners, I forgot to ask this at the beginning. Can you tell us where you're joining us from today? Naples, Florida. Naples, Florida. How did you make out a few weeks ago? So thanks for asking that. We lost power, but we live a distance from the water, so we didn't have any flooding and didn't have any damage to our apartment. So that was we, we did much better than a lot of people in Naples, some of whom actually lost their lives. It was very sad. No kidding. No kidding. So it was such a, a huge event. Huge. Yeah. And, and it's my understanding, like the people that live in Naples kind of live in Naples to avoid some of the weather issues on the other side of the state. Isn't that true? Well, many people who live year round in Naples, we have a large a large population of Canadians, by the way, have come down here in the winter, mm-hmm. mainly from eastern Canada. Yeah, we don't talk so to those people. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's a, I mean, the place has wonderful, it's a wonderful place to live, notwithstanding the odd hurricane. And even with hurricanes, if you, we have strong building codes. And when you see these disasters, they tend to be older places that were built not to current building standards, but still terribly sad. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to liven this up a little bit for us. You just mentioned you meet a lot of Canadians in Naples. You must meet people from Saskatchewan. I have met people from Saskatchewan, yes. Well, I am actually from Saskatchewan. (laughs) grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So a question I always like to ask our U.S. guests, and there's no pressure around this, being an introvert, extrovert, or ambivert, how do you spell Saskatchewan? It's just for fun. I have no idea. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. I thought you were going to ask me like some personality. I love questions about Canadians and Americans. I will tell you this. I have a strong bias towards Canadians. Every interaction I have with Canadians is extremely positive. I have a lot of clients 
in Canada. One of my closest friends lives in Canada. I'm sure I'm, again, meeting a small sample of people, but I always have the best experiences with Canadians. But I'm not going to try to spell Saskatchewan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're off the hook. You're off the hook. That was a good answer. That was a good answer. Yeah, Paige, give yeah. them the next one. All right. How about this one? Do you ever wear a toque? This would be more like when you're in Massachusetts in the winter. What is that? Well, this is what we're trying to get from you. Wintertime, you're wearing like a, a wool hat that has a pom-pom on it. Ah, uh, yeah. As you're digging out the snow. Wouldn't be caught dead in doing this. Yeah. <laughs> but, but... Having said that, I'm never in the winter, right? So, right, right. I mean, I rarely, sometimes when I used to travel more, you know, pre-pandemic, I'd go to cold climates in the winter, but it's, it's really quite rare. Yeah. And I certainly, I would look so ridiculous in that that I couldn't bear the thought of it. So, so keep in mind, introverts, we're not interested in getting people to look at us. Like, <laughs> yeah. We don't want a lot of attention. I get too much attention. So the last thing I want is somebody to come over to me, some stranger, and say, oh, I love your hat. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. This is not what introverts look for. Okay, though, I will say this, though, Dan, where we live, we have this thing called winter. And if you're yes. not wearing a toque or a beanie, as it's commonly referred to in the U.S., people would right. actually look at you funny like, whoa, that guy's going to catch a cold, you know? So there's a big cultural difference. I get it. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's let Dan off the hook here. What do you think? Or should we ask one more question? Let's ask you one more just because I always want to know. I'm looking for good TV. Any shows that you're watching that are good? Yes. I love, it's not Lasso, it's Lasso, I think. Ted Lasso, right? I thought that was a great show. I loved, I loved his philosophy of life. I just, you know, sometimes you watch these comedic shows, you actually learn a lot from them. And then there's another one. It's a Korean show, and I'm, I'm going to mess up the name. It's like The Incredible Attorney Wu. That's all I can remember. But it's a story, a fictionalized story of an attorney in Korea who has fairly severe autism, but tries cases and how she overcomes. And maybe this, I never thought about this till I've been talking to the two of you about communication, but obviously autistic people, depending upon where they are on the spectrum, can have tremendous difficulty interacting with non-autistic people. And it made me very sensitive to, I think it's difficult when you're not, not afflicted with autism to communicate effectively. And she overcame these struggles and was able to communicate as an autistic person. It was tremendously inspiring. I love hmm. the show. Sounds pretty awesome. All right. Well, listen, Dan, thanks again for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking that time. And thanks for everything that you're doing. You're writing, you're posting. It's all good. We appreciate it. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Paige. Thank you for dressing up for me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> you're welcome. Made, made the experience even better. <laughs> Glad you thanks, enjoyed it. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.